I read from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around them. Remember the Last Supper that happened yesterday as we celebrated Maudie Thursday because it led up to the betrayal of Jesus as he was turned over. Today we will hear, as I mentioned earlier, from seven lay people as they share the seven last phrases of Jesus from the cross. As you hear from them, I want you to remember what we just read about in this other scripture, that he loved them till the end. Let us hear the seven last words of Jesus from the cross. The first word that, uh, that Jesus spoke from the cross of Calvary comes from the book of Luke chapter 23, verse 34. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, and it says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, as I read this verse, and in my thought process, I am reminded of two things. Number one, the behavior of those who do not understand what the true concept of Christianity is. On one hand, you have those that will either challenge or ridicule, making mockeries of anyone who claims to be a Christ follower. That's seen all the time. We see those, those types of behaviors in schools, at, at work, at the park. Um, People being, Christians being challenged because of their faith, because they have no clue of the truth of what it is like to be a follower of Jesus. So, on the one hand, you have the lost people with no guidance, people with no direction, people like me many years ago before coming to Christ on a day like today. Coming to church broken, coming to church lost, coming to church hurt, but it took a whole army of wonderful, loving people for me to know that there was more to Christianity than what the world 
would project. So then on the other hand, on the other hand, you have Jesus who in reality, in reality shows us three things in, the, in this first word. And one of the things that he shows me, number one, is that Jesus is never surprised by this type of behavior because he knows that a man without the direction of the Holy Spirit is lost, and a lost person will act lost. Number two, before forgiveness was asked, forgiveness was already given. And number three, Jesus shows that he will always advocate to the Father for us because he loves us. Even hanging on that cross, even dying at that moment, his compassion was to advocate for those that were making a mockery of who he claimed to be, asking the Father to forgive them. Why? Because they have no clue who was hanging in that cross. Forgiveness. Forgiveness will set free the one who forgives more than the one that receives forgiveness. Jesus loves you. He wants to set you free. That's why his blood was shed, so you can experience that freedom through his forgiveness. God bless. So I have the second word of Jesus on the cross, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, Luke 23, verse 43. Truly, and he said to them, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And Jesus was speaking here to the thief that was hanging on the cross. And just prior to this verse, the thief had said unto him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. We have no other record of this thief ever interacting with Jesus, and there are really several things in this that strike me that I'd like to mention. The first is, if you'll notice, the first three sets of words that Jesus had on the cross were all about other people. The first thing he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And now he's concerned about the thief who's hanging next to him. And in the next word, I don't want to steal any thunder, but he's concerned about his mother and that John take care of his mother. Now, I don't know if you've ever been really hurting in life, had real pain going on. I personally haven't ever had a migraine, but I'm just kind of projecting. Margie can correct me here, but you kind of want people to go away and let's be alone in a quiet, still place. And for heaven's sakes, don't ask me to do something for you while I'm really hurting. I have had a couple of times I was really hurting. I'm not sure the words that came out of my mouth, but they weren't gracious things. They were things that emanated from pain, and I did not want to keep going. 
Uh, in that movie, um, uh, Risen, there's a really good description of what a crucifixion is like. But you really only pick where you're going to have severe pain because you're going to have horrifying pain. And it was incredible that Jesus' thoughts were about other people and that his thought was about this thief. Now, I could easily have said or see Jesus saying, all right, you blew it. You had your chance at the plate. You did bad things and you're about to die and you're just trying to weasel yourself on into heaven and God's not mocked. You're not going to get away with the life you lived. Can you see that? That's not Jesus. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And paradise is heaven. He said, today you will be with me in heaven. And that really brings me to my second point, which is one of the main things that the enemy uses is to tell us that some aspect of our life has gone too far and that God cannot fix it anymore. And so he might come to me and say, okay, well, you're 70 years old and uh, you don't readily forgive people who do bad things to you. And if you hadn't got it straight in 70 years, just give up on it. That's you. You hear me? Or God comes along or Satan comes along and says, um, gosh, you've had another disturbing habit in your life. You tend to see bad things in people rather than getting underneath them and praying for them and you need to you tend to say those things they just come out of your mouth naturally and that just shows that the best god could do with you is to make you a second class christian just settle in there that's all you're going to get every depressing discouraging word that you ever hear has its source in the enemy and those are the things he would say and here was the thief he had nothing redeeming to offer of himself. There was nothing there. He couldn't get down and say, if you'll help me, I'll go and help the poor and the widows and really do a lot of good things and make myself worthwhile. No, he was gonna die. He couldn't say, I'd offer you water. He couldn't reach anything. He was gonna die. He was of no earthly use that you could see. And what did Jesus say? Just because you are, I forgive you and you will be with me today in heaven. And I've just been an encouraging thing in my life and kind of a recognized thing in my life, recognized when the enemy's coming in that way. In Revelation, it says he's the accuser of the brethren. He certainly does accuse us, but he belittles us. And he says, you're not going to be able to change. You're not going to be able to be as good as you should have been. And it's all pushing you down and down because Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the enemy is very much about all those things in our life. And the third and final thing that sticks out to me here is that Jesus said, you're going to be with me where? In heaven, in paradise. And we lose track a little bit of God here, you know, on some things because God knows what he's doing from the beginning. He knew we were going to mess up. And the Bible says that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. Can you imagine being with Jesus and the Father and creating Adam and Eve, knowing that you're going to have to go to the cross to redeem them to dwell eternally with the Father? It might be a little hint of, why don't we just not make them? 
this doesn't look like something I would like to do. But he didn't do that. He made us knowing he was going to have to give his life for us. God was not surprised by that. He knew that was going to be. But he also knew there would be two creations. God knew there would be a first creation that we would live in for some period of time. But he also knew there would be a second creation. And this creation is described in Revelation 21. And I just want to read a few verses because it's so neat to read. And it describes heaven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, or the dwelling of God, is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And when Jesus sent the disciples out to minister, he gave them authority to heal diseases and to cast out demons. And when they came back, they came to him and said, even the demons obeyed us. And Jesus said something that stunned me. He said, if you're going to rejoice, rejoice in this, that your names are written in the book of life. Heaven is one fabulous place where God dwells amongst us, and we can't conceive of it. But it is something very much worth rejoicing over and appreciating the sacrifice that the Lord made. So each one of us none of whom is worthy, but every one of us that follows him, we walk in on the back of Jesus' sacrifice, and God looks through him and sees us as righteous because we have trusted in him. Praise the Lord.
I'm going to read the third word, which is from John 19, 26 and 27. I'm going to read the message version. While the soldiers were looking after themselves, Jesus' mother, his aunt Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene stood at the foot of the cross. Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing near her. He said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Then to the disciple, here's your mother. From that moment, the disciple accepted her as his own mother. I definitely should have printed this out bigger, so hopefully <laughs> I can get through this. Um, so Mary and the other women and John, John was modest and he referred to himself as the disciple, but we're talking about John, were the only ones remaining throughout Jesus' time on the cross. So one idea about why this was is that there was less political risk to them since they were women and a younger man than to the other disciples. But it also tells us about the emotional bond of Mary and Jesus as an earthly mother and son. Mary was probably with, that, with Jesus throughout the Passion, um, likely from the Last Supper onwards, even though da Vinci didn't paint her, um, and accompanied him through the pain, the fear, and the horror of Jesus' trial and crucifixion. So as a mother, I empathize with that. We definitely can't control everything that happens to our kids, but one thing we can do is be with them through it. So Mary was giving Jesus that gift, um, and I would like to hope that he felt some comfort to be able to meet her eyes during everything that he went through during the Passion. 
And how many times during those days must Mary have remembered Simeon's prophecy at Jesus' birth that a sword will pierce your own soul too? So I can maybe begin to imagine a tiny bit of how that felt to Mary. As parents, it's always hard to see our kids go through something difficult. Um, some of you remember a couple of years ago, Isabel broke and dislocated her ankle, um, and her foot was going the wrong direction. So it was pretty gruesome and was laying in our front yard screaming. And I, I couldn't see straight. I was nauseous. I was trembling. And I thank God for Max, my son, who was able to keep it together and call the ambulance and everything. Um, and that was just a tiny fraction of the pain and the torture that Jesus experienced. So Mary must have felt, I mean, just horrified, weak, nauseous, unable to stand. But she remained at the foot of the cross. And if we think about it this way, I think there's another level to Jesus' words to Mary and John, and that, you know, if you read a lot of commentaries, it says it's about Mary's legal status as a widow and making sure that she was taken care of. But I think also it was in that moment, you know, that John was able to come to her, maybe put an arm around her, support her in that moment where she was probably just overcome. There was also probably an added element of fear and terror because this was, among other things, a political execution. So Mary's soul must have just cried out at the injustice of it all. Um, imagining how she felt at that time, I think about the mothers of our own day, the mother of Trayvon Martin, the mothers of Ukraine writing their kids, writing their phone numbers on the back of their kids and something in case something happens to them that feeling of helplessness and of being caught up and just ground in this injustice that you can't do anything about. They didn't know what Rome or the local authorities were going to do later to Jesus's family and followers. And the political and religious repression of their community also had to be on Mary's and John's minds at that time. And so their mutual support for each other and familial relationship would hopefully give them hope for their ability to navigate the unknown times ahead. At the beginning of Mary's story with Jesus, she had to say yes to God in extraordinary circumstances. At the Annunciation, she may or may not have had a full understanding of all the trouble that was going to come of it, but she said yes. She had to do that so many more times throughout her life as Jesus' mother and as Jesus' disciple, and she kept saying yes, even under the most difficult circumstances. That's another meaning of Mary remaining at the cross, continuing to say yes to the plan, even in the worst moment of her life. So if I'm honest, I think it's one of the most difficult things for me as a parent is actually to trust God with my children. For whatever reason, I don't have any trouble trusting my own life, um, having any fear of death or any fear of the future, but I do sometimes struggle with trusting that my kids are gonna be okay. So that may be the control freak part of my personality, but it's the truth. Um, so how difficult must it have been for Mary at that moment to trust God's plan for Jesus and to trust God's plan for the world? The pain, the torture, but also the scattering of the disciples. Jerusalem was in riot and chaos. The religious institutions of the day were breaking down. Does any of this sound familiar? Um, how could this be the plan? How hard must it have been for Mary at that moment to trust that everything was going to be okay? 
I know we say this every year on Good Friday, but remember, at this time, it's Good Friday, and they don't know about Easter yet. The times through which we have just passed um, these past several years have also been dark and difficult. And I think if we're honest, I'm probably not the only person who echoed the words of the Israelites in the desert during these years, saying, is the Lord still among us or not? I'm sure that Mary must have had those questions at so many points before Jesus began his public ministry, when his ministry was provoking the religious authorities and causing her family to be ostracized. Maybe she even doubted her plan for the Messiah overall. I know that if I lived at that time, I think I would have felt like, why didn't God send a Messiah who was gonna get us out from the Romans' yoke rather than someone so gentle he entered Jerusalem on a donkey? So, at the cross and at Jesus' tomb, she must have thought, at least briefly, I would find it amazing if she didn't, is the Lord still among us or not? Was I misled or mistaken all along? But if we step back and we look at the full Gospels, we also see that when Mary was expecting Jesus and went to see her cousin Elizabeth, she spoke what we later came to call the Magnificat. Um, in which she reflected on the meaning of the Messiah to Israel. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. And then later, when Jesus was presented at the temple, Simeon prophesied, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. It bothers me every year at Christmas time when they play that song on the radio, Mary, Did You Know? Because clearly Mary knew. Um, Mary believed in God's promises to her and, and to all Israel. She says, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Um, as I was reading and thinking and praying about this passage, I looked at a lot of images, and in a lot of the images of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, they depicted Mary holding a book. And the symbolic meaning of this is that Mary was holy, was always at prayer, she knew the word of God, and it's also a representation of the word made flesh through her. So, you know, as I was praying and reflecting on all these different parts of Mary's life and the relationship between Mary and Jesus, I really identified with the sort of duality. She knew God and she understood God's promises but there were also these dark moments in her life. And I am imagining as a mother that she struggled emotionally to trust God or didn't understand his purposes. I'm grateful for this word, which allowed me to meditate on both ways of looking at this experience of Mary, being bewildered and in pain about why things are not going the way that we want or expect or believe that God has promised. And we can also cling to and emulate that aspect of Mary that Elizabeth saw when she exclaimed, blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So I have the fourth word um, from Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Matthew 27, verses 45 through 46. Um, 
So before Miguel sent out the email asking for volunteers to speak, I kind of already knew that I was going to take this word. So as soon as he emailed, I think I responded immediately. I'm like, I want that word because I had already been kind of studying it, meditating on it um, from a theological standpoint. And so, you know, I had for weeks kind of prepared some, some, um, um, some cool scripture pulling in from different parts like the Old Testament. Um, but then uh, last night God was like, don't want you to share that. So uh, bear with me because I'm everything that I'm sharing is kind of, I haven't had time to process it, so you'll have to process it with me. Because um, I was going to be so excited to share with you, as most of you know, um, when, when, he, when, he, when Jesus said these words, it, um, it's the first verse in Psalm 22. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm uh, written by David over a thousand years ago. And I wanted to tell you about how hey, this is the, the psalm that predicted Jesus' crucifixion. David wrote it a thousand years ago, 600 years before crucifixion was even invented. I mean, you know, it, it, it talks about piercing his hands and how, how um, his clothes were divided and they cast lots for it. I mean, everything down to the very detail. And I was going to tell you about how you know, a study was done by Westmont College on the different prophecies of Jesus, and they, um, a professor actually did a mathematical calculation that the probability of one man uh, fulfilling all eight pro um, prophecies was um, one times 10 to the 17th power. So I was going to be really excited to share with you that in order to visualize that, just think about the state of Texas and covering it in coins two feet deep, and you mark one of those coins and then you have a blind person spend as long as they want picking up a coin, and that's the probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies. Um, but Jesus fulfilled over 400 prophecies. And I, I don't think our brains can even comprehend that number. That number exceeds the number of stars in the universe that we know about that, that God has created. Um, I was going to be so excited to tell you about how 800 years before Micah wrote that, you know, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, you know, another 800 years before Hosea said that um, he would be taken to Egypt and brought out as a baby, and in Isaiah he would be a Nazarene even before, you know, that, that town existed. It was a play on words for branch. I was so excited to tell you about all of that, and uh, God said, you know things about me, but do you know me? And, uh, you know, he brought me to Philippians 3.8, and it says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And, and so God said, where is my heart and what you're looking for? And so I sat down last night, and, uh, you know, I prayed, and I, and I said, okay, God, show me your heart. And... Then I find myself pulling my phone out, looking up like facts about crucifixion and you know how long does it take a person to die, and, and at some point I just had to throw my phone and Bible to the. It sounds weird to say I had to throw my Bible to the side, but I had to throw it to the side and I just closed my eyes. I'm like, all right, God, show me. And then in that moment, he uh, he brought me to the foot of the cross. And at the foot of the cross, it was dark, because you know from noon to 3 o'clock, it was darkness. I felt like I could, I felt like I could smell Jesus' blood. I look up, and there he is, beaten, bloodied, gasping for breath. And so I just sat there, 
in, in the spirit, just kind of waiting at the foot of the cross. I'm like, all right, God, I mean, you know, show me what you mean. And, and the first thought that I had in my mind, it was, it was a weird thought at the time, but, you know, because I was just waiting. I'm like, I wonder what Jesus' voice is going to sound like when he finally does speak. And, uh, and as soon as I thought that, I, I started thinking about my dad, about his last words. And I started just grieving in my heart because I wanted to hear his voice again. And so I started to look through my phone for voicemails I had saved, and I couldn't find them. And I realized a couple years back when I got a new phone, um, I decided I didn't have the strength to go through and listen to the voicemails and record them. So I thought I had lost them, but my husband, he, uh, he did it for me. He, he saved them, and, I, and he, <laughs> he sent me a link to them. And so... You know, I got, I got to hear my dad's voice. Um, I'm just, I'm just going to play it. Anyway, I just want to tell you I love you, and um, I'm not trying to ignore you. I'm just uh, going through a lot of hard times, and I've only been Christian. But, uh, come on, okay? Mom's been terminated. Love you. Miss Harrison, Harrison on this thing. Uh, so that was a voicemail from my dad about eight years ago. Uh, for those of you that don't know, um, I had a really weird childhood growing up. Uh, my parents lived separate, and I thought it was because, well, my dad's in the military, and he, you know, he has to, you know, go and be deployed places. But then they kept living separate, and it wasn't until a lot later I found out he was living a double life. He was living with another woman. They actually got a dog together. Um, I remember thinking about that for some reason. And, um, and then it wasn't until years later I, I found out that, uh, you know, he was an alcoholic. He, uh, you know, living that double life, living those lies every day. Like, you, you, if, you're not turning, if you're not turning to God to, to cope with that, to that sin, you turn to other things. And so he turned to alcohol. And I found out, you know, a lot later, too, that he was abused as a child and just all of these things. And on December 2013, um, my dad was in the hospital at the time because all that alcohol, just his liver was shot. And um, he was at the uh, hospital near a military base in Maryland recovering. And um, um, my mom calls me and she's like, I just got a call from the doctors. Uh, your dad's heart stopped. Um, they asked me what to do, and I didn't know what to. And I didn't. I didn't know what what he would want, but I told him to do whatever it takes. And I, at that moment, I got on my knees and I prayed. I'm like, Lord, save my dad. He does not know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Save my dad so I can have a chance to see him again and talk to him again. And um, you know, by God's hand, he was saved. I come to find out later that my dad, months before, had filed a DNR: do not resuscitate. Um, if he ever was in that situation, but the doctors could not find any file of that. So, you know, thank God for that. But um, after they stabilized him, um, you know, we, we brought him down here. I convinced him to come down here. I told him, you, you got to be near your family. You know, you know, you got to, you got to be with your grandson Harrison. Harrison wasn't even one yet. You got to be with, you got to be with your family. And and he came down, and that was the seven best months I ever had with my dad. 
you know, he, he learned how to walk again. It, it was a struggle. We would go to AA meetings together. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd sit there and listen to his story, and he would share. He would show pictures of his family. He said, this is my sobriety book. You know, the doctor told him, if you have one more drink, you are going to die. And so he had a he had And so I still remember the day he, he came to the service, and he, he could barely walk because he was still learning how to walk again. And, and he came. He came to this, this very spot, and Jenny prayed for him. And um, right here, kneeling in all his pain and all the suffering, all the rejection he faced in his life, the lies that he lived, the pain that was caused to him and that he caused others here. He was at the foot of the cross, and he accepted Jesus as his Savior. And I just remember just, uh, just I'm feeling so happy. And, uh, but, you know, like, we kept, you know, he, he, he would come to Bible studies with me, and I'd keep going to the AA meetings. He was so proud. He got the, the purple coin, the eight-month sobriety. He had been sober for eight months. Um, I actually, uh, you know, I, I, I still have that coin. I, I used to carry it around all the time because, you know, when I knew my dad was struggling with alcohol, I decided I wouldn't, I would never taste a drop of alcohol on my lips. So I carried that coin around every day after he died. And, you know, eventually the coin became too heavy. And I, in two years ago, decided to have a drink. And I hated myself for it. I hated myself. And I just relived that pain and suffering again of, of losing my dad. And, and honestly, I guess the weight of that coin was too heavy for him, too, because on a Wednesday in July, I got that phone call that I never wanted to get. <laughs> My dad, had a, they found him on the side of a road in his truck with a bottle of liquor. That weight of that coin was just too heavy. He couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He, couldn't, he could not in his own strength just resist that temptation. He couldn't in his own strength find the will to live a different way. So it's last night sitting at the foot of the cross with Jesus. These, these are the thoughts going through my mind. And, uh, and it was at that point that Jesus, in a strong voice, which you, how, how can it be strong, right? Like when, when you're, when, when, when during crucifixion, you're, the, the chest cavity is like, there's so much pressure, like your lungs are collapsing. There's no way, like his, his body is in shock from all the whipping, the bleeding. Like how did he even, how did he even like muster the strength to say this one, to say this one verse? And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't, he, he didn't choose that word because it pointed to a prophecy. He didn't need to convince us that he was fulfilling a prophecy. He could have chosen Isaiah 53 for that because that explains the crucifixion and the reason why he died for them. But he chose Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because our Savior understands our suffering. When my dad died alone in that truck, he, he knew that he, he, he knew probably that day that he was going to die because he knew he was going to drink again. When he died alone in that truck suffering and alone, our Savior knew that pain, that loss, that, that even greater pain when you are in such grief, when you're suffering and you, feel, you can't feel the presence of God near you. 
our Savior understands that. He doesn't know about our suffering. He knows our suffering. And this is why he is our Savior. God in all his power could have just defeated death and sin, just like that. But he chose this way because this is the heart of our God. The heart of our God is for us. The heart of our God knows our pain, knows our suffering, knows our loneliness, knows our weaknesses, knows our temptations. And the heart of our God wants us to be reconciled with him. He wants us to know, not know about him, he wants us to know him. This is our God. I'm sharing the fifth word that Jesus spoke from the cross. John chapter 19, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. I've been living with this word for a couple of weeks and the longer I live with it, the more I realize I don't know what it is to be thirsty. Not really. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. before he said, I thirst, and took a drink of sour wine. He had already suffered the beating, the nailing, the bleeding out, the suffocation, and the torture of the cross. And then God turned his back on him. Because just before Jesus says, I thirst, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is completely alone when he endures the full physical and spiritual price of sin. One of the hardest nights of my life was when Lily was a newborn and Wren was two years old. Wren and I both caught a stomach bug and started throwing up in the middle of the night. The first time, Will got up and changed the sheets. Ren crawled into bed with me to sleep, and then we threw up a second time. Will changed the sheets again. We threw up a third time. We were out of sheets, so Will put a bunch of towels on the mattress. And I remember feeling so dehydrated, so sick to my stomach, so tired, and frantic because I was also trying to get up and nurse Lily through this. But I was not alone as Jesus was alone. I had hope the night would end, but the darkness that fell from noon to three o'clock, the absolute terrifying darkness when God was no longer there, Jesus endured that darkness alone. My grandfather, fought the Japanese in World War II. One day his company was retreating, and by retreating, I mean they were running for their life. They came to a river and the soldiers started swimming across, but my grandfather didn't know how to swim. So he ran to a pond nearby and hid beneath an upturned boat. 
He waited hours for the Japanese to go by, terrified that he would be found and killed. He waited so long that by the time he left the pond, he had a skin disease that would stay with him for the rest of his life. And he was so sick that he nearly died. Thankfully, a farmer found him and nursed him back to health. Someone rescued my grandfather, but no one rescued Jesus from the cross. He chose that cross for us, even though he was innocent, even though he did not deserve to suffer that death. It's really hard for me to understand why the innocent suffer. World War II was a really hard time for China. In the city where I was born, Nanjing, the Japanese massacred 300,000 civilians over six weeks. They took children as young as my eight-year-old daughter, and they gang raped them. They, they cut open the bellies of pregnant women, and they took babies and skewered them on bayonets as a game to see how many they could get on one sword. I can't imagine that. And I can't imagine now the suffering that's happening in the Ukraine. People who have lost lives, limbs, loved ones, who have spent two months now living in terror and darkness. I don't know what that's like, but Jesus does. He knows what it's like to face the ultimate darkness alone and with no hope of rescue. He knows the full extent of human suffering because he experienced the most pain any human can experience. In the darkest, blackest night when the rest of us would have lost our minds and been angry with God for abandoning us and wanting to call down fire and brimstone on the murderers who put him on the cross. Jesus is obedient and merciful. When he says, I thirst, he invites flawed and sinful people to be part of God's work of grace by asking us for a drink. And he takes this drink, which is just a cheap wine that poor people drink when they're thirsty back in ancient Israel because water is not clean. This wine keeps him alive just a little longer so all of God's plan can be fulfilled. And you see God's plan and how they deliver the wine to Jesus. John 19.29 says they soaked a sponge in wine vinegar and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant. In Leviticus, hyssop is what you use in the rituals to cleanse a person from leprosy or a house from mold. In Exodus, God tells the Israelites to use a bunch of hyssop 
to paint their door frames with the blood of a lamb so death can pass over them. Everything Jesus suffered on the cross was to cleanse us from our sin so death will pass over us. The Lamb of God poured out his blood so we can drink the cup of the new covenant, which means we're accepted by God not because of what we've done or how well we follow the law or how good of a Christian we look, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. He faced the cross alone so that we will not be alone when we walk through suffering. He did it so we can hope for rescue. We can trust in the one who faced the worst evil in this world and conquered it. Through his sacrifice, he gave us the strength to be with God and to stand with God in the darkest moments of our life. We can now hope for something better than death. We can know the darkness will end and the morning will come because Jesus chose to pay the price for us to be with God for always. Trust you, I don't need 
ago. It's hard to follow tonight, I'll tell you. My word is the sixth word Jesus said from the cross, John 19, 30. Jesus said it is finished and gave over his spirit to the Father. I've got some notes I'll follow, and they'll see where the Lord leads me to, to talk. Jesus started his journey to the cross on a silent night in Bethlehem many years before this day of pain and suffering and ultimate sacrifice and love. When he was foretold and destined to be the bridge of a fault to a fallen world back to the Father, the bridge that was broken in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve's sin. Jesus had a mission like no one else on earth ever had. He and he alone would tell of the endless love of God and show the unimaginable power of God to heal and restore, knowing that his greatest example to the world that his most feared enemy, death, which we all fear, if we're all to be honest about it, would be conquered by giving his life as the perfect sinless offering for all of mankind. Each day that he taught and healed showed what real love was brought, brought him closer to this terrible day when his work given to him at his birth would be completed and true fellowship with the Father was finally restored. I think of our lives and my life one day, we will all say, it's finished. We're, we're not here anymore. The question is, what will that really mean? What plans or goals that God had for us were accomplished? Did we love enough? Did we care and pray enough for a world that seems to have gone mad with conflict, hate, and war? How faithful were we to serve the Lord that had us here for a purpose? If we really think about in our heart of hearts, none of us are here by accident. There's a reason for our existence in this time and place and how we fit into the plan that God had for us and to fulfill in his, this world of his. We only need to look to Jesus and what he said and did and we'll know that he is the compass we need to follow and that he will let us be certain that we are headed in the right direction to finish our lives here and begin our eternal life with the Lord who gave everything to have us safely at home with him for eternity. Now, that's my notes. Now, I've got some other things I want to say as well. It's been a while since I turned on the TV, and I've got the DVD at home of The, the Passion of the Christ. For those of you who haven't seen it, or those of you who have seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It is the most gut-wrenching depiction of the crucifixion of our Lord that you'll ever see. Brenda was looking at the grandkids this afternoon. I was taking a, a day off I'd, and everything. Blake was out for a shoot. And I sat there and watched it. And I thought, okay, you can get through this. No, I couldn't. I, I cried. I cried. When you see someone beat to a pulp, that they did that for me and they did it for you, and they could have snapped their fingers and said, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go through this. I'm not going to suffer for these people. And you see the people that were torturing him and beating on him and everything. I think about what Sheila said and what Jenny said. My dad was a bombardier and a B-17 bomber in World War II, as some of you know. He laid on his, in his barracks bed at night after going on a mission during the day and seeing his friends get blown out of the sky over the skies of Germany and France. And he laid in his bed wanting to go into Berlin and to kill Hitler because of what he was doing to thousands and millions of people. And I thought, well, that's... That's in the past. That's the greatest generation took care of that. That's, that's finished. We don't have to worry about it anymore. I have the same feeling about somebody else in Moscow right now, as a lot of you do. 
And as old as I am, if I didn't have a family, I would be on the next plane to Kiev right now. When I see men, women, and children, the atrocities that I've seen there, I can't stand it. In fact, some of my friends, relatives said, John, you're looking at it too much. Well, this is not 80 years ago. This evil lives now. Hitler may have, been, may have died, but he is, he is here. His, the spirit of evil is here. And, I, I just, and when I'm having grandkids like I do, I just cannot stand to see what's going on out there. And what I'm saying in my notes is that are we standing against evil in this world? Are we doing everything we can to come against the, the evil that's out there? And I don't know. Like I say, if I, was, if I didn't have a family, then anybody depending on that would be over there because I, I can't stand the sight of it. And I didn't know that about you, Jenny. My heart goes out to you. I've read about that. And the, <clears throat> it's one of the most horrible things I've ever seen. For some of you that don't know, do I have some water here? I'm getting dry in my mouth for some reason. I've given over a cold. There, okay. For some of you that don't know, uh, Kiev, or Kiev as it used to be called during World War II, had one of the greatest atrocities other than Nanking in, in China. Uh, 33,000 people were killed one weekend by the Nazis. They were machine gunned. Men, women, and children were taken and machine gunned into a ditch. And one, there was a three, and Tiffany knows this as well, there was four Ukrainian Jewish men, brothers. One of them was saved. The one that was saved was Vladimir Zelensky's grandfather. So God had a plan even back then to save Ukraine, to bring them about. And I just thought about this today and what everybody's been saying, that Jesus didn't have anybody to save him. He had to go through this himself. Well, I believe these poor people, even though the things that have been done to them, the atrocities, the murders, the rapes, everything, somehow, some way, Jesus has been, is there with them in their last moments on this earth. We see what the carnage it was there, but he is there. The finished work he did on the cross means that he conquered death. We see the results of the atrocities, but the death that we see it's not, that's not all we see. He's saying, these people are with me. There's some of the biggest Christian congregations and beliefs in the Ukraine that you know, they're in the world, from what I understand. So this is not something that we're fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against principalities and powers of the air, as the word says. So we can fight it as we want to weapons, but there are all the other things in the, the spiritual realms that we're coming against. And I think the battle that we're seeing here on earth is just part of what we're seeing. There's a much bigger battle in the heavenly realms that is going against this. And I pray that they will be victorious and come against this. And that really is, I mean, it, when, when I saw today, when I saw Jim Caviezel, I'll just tell you a bit about this. A few years ago, my son Blake told me about Jim Caviezel, the actor in The Passion of the Christ, was at Michael Youssef's church, uh, the Apostles, Church of the Apostles. And we got a chance to meet him. It was during like their friendship moments. And I went over and, and met the man. He was one of the most humble people I ever met in my life. And I thought, this is the man that was in the movie in 2004. And I thought of that today when I saw him again in the movie, how even though this wasn't really happening, he was de depicting the, the pain, the suffering. And people were just, they were, it was just horrible to watch somebody that was treated so bad. But he did it for me. And I think, why, why, why? Am I worth that? Are you worth that? We obviously were. And I, this, 
And I've talked to Brenda many times about this. To, getting bright again. I'm out of talk to my tongue, I guess. Uh, is why, God, don't you intervene in all this? Why don't you stop this? And I can't, I don't understand why. I mean, that's, that's his decision, what he wants to do. I wish he would, and ultimately he will. Ultimately, he, we, we, we win. But I just, you know, I, I see this every night. I'm thinking, okay, Lord, when are you going to turn things around? And he's, he's saying, I've got it under control, John. You may not think I do, but I do. I do. And it's hard. It's hard when you see what's going on. And, you know, the part that we live in a fallen world, well, okay, I understand that. But we, there's more to it than just that. There's more to it. The way, is, he's saying, do you trust me enough to go to, to see what you see here? Your dad went through this. Now you're having to face it, not as a soldier, not as an airman, but you're seeing it every now on your TV. Do you trust me that I'm going to bring good out of this, this horrible, horrible situation? And I'm going I'm to win in the end. I say, okay, Lord, you got it. You got it. I'll just keep, you know, clinging to you and what you're doing. But, you know, it's just, it's very hard. But I just have to think, what he, you know, today is a day of mourning. But praise God, Sunday is a day of rejoicing. He, he is one. He is risen. Thank you. I have Jesus' seventh word, Gospel of Luke 23:46. Jesus cried out in a loud spirit voice, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. My mother died this past December 6th. She was five days short of being 97 years old. Her body wore out. She was doing fine in September. October 1st, she fell. The next nine weeks, we had 24-7 sitters. The five children took their scheduling at her house. And we had a hospice nurses in and out several times a week. Hospice nurses are a wealth of knowledge. Their job is dealing with death. At one point, the hospice nurse came in and she said, this is not medical, this is not science. Your mother has less than two weeks to live. I said to her, what do you see we don't see? And she said, I see death. And one day short of two weeks, my mother was gone. These women know what they're doing, the women and the men. One day they told us, they were asked, we would ask questions, they would tell us stuff. They left pamphlets that were just full of knowledge of what my mother was going through and what she would be going through as she moved toward her death. One thing they said was she would use symbolic language and that she, not to take her literally, that she would be talking about going home. Home is heaven, they said. They're trying to get to heaven, so don't tell them they're in their home because they're not in heaven. Heaven is their home they're going to. Now this also involved some transportation references. I told her I had to go home to cook for Thanksgiving and she said, how are you getting home? I said, I have my car. And she said, how am I gonna get home? How would you answer that question? Barbara Snipes' mother was trying to catch a plane that was in her backyard Eleanor's Aunt Frances would get the bus routes trying to figure out how to get home on the MARTA bus, except she called it the trolley. 
My mother saw a dark car that was always pulling away, dark blue. She talked about losing people. One night she was very agitated and the sitter called me and I walked in. I had never seen my mother sob. I'm 68, I have never seen my mother sob. She burst into a sob and said, I thought I had lost you. We held each other and cried. I had to call my sisters and make sure they were alive and that she had not lost them. The hospice nurse explained, this is the mother separating from the child. We had never been separated since my birth and she was preparing for this separation. Another thing the hospice nurse said would happen was she would see into the spiritual realm. They asked if she had had any miscarriages or had lost any children at young. Women close to death would sometimes see these children as they come to get their mothers. Isn't that sweet for those of you who've had miscarriages? Tender. She also may see her own mother, which she had not seen since she was 19. If the mother comes, death is usually two or three days away. Isn't that fascinating? Well, my mother indeed saw things. You could tell when she was seeing things because her eyes would dart and she would point. I was with her one day and she was looking around. I said, what do you see? She said, there's a man in the dining room. And I tell you, I was creeped out. I said, to make conversation, oh really, what's he wearing? He's got a hat on. Well, you know, what's he doing? He's just walking around. Another time she said, do you see that lady in the corner? I said, no. Do you see her face? She said, no, she's looking away from me. I said, well, what is, what is she wearing? A bridal gown. Okay, that creeped me out too. <laughs> Creepy, she's seeing bridal gowns. Well, we moved mother into the living room like Mary, Mary Montgomery did her mother in front of the big front windows. We're in COVID pandemic, so people could come, the children, the great-grandchildren could play outside, could visit through the window, mother could watch things coming and going. So Susan was there, my sister, making idle conversation, and she said, oh, I just love these windows, and mother said, they're gold, and there's a door in the middle of them. Susan said, interesting, and she said, Susan, open that door. Susan said, I can't open that door. That door's for you. You have to open it. She said, I'm not opening that door. I know what's on the other side of that door. I'm not opening it. So from time to time, we'd say, Mama, is the door still there? Oh, yeah, the door was still there. She wasn't opening it. On the day of her death, her body was failing. We had a different hospice nurse come. It was a Sunday. She asked the same questions. And she said, as we were all gathered there, knowing she was failing, this nurse said, are there any unresolved issues that would hold her here? We said no, but we knew she was hesitant to go. She wasn't going to open that door. I had told her when she was alert several weeks before that if she had a chance to go to heaven and see daddy and her mother and her father, go ahead and go. We'd be all right. 
She looked at me and she went, oh, if that were only so. I thought, mama, we're all in our 60s. We're grandparents, we're all retired. We'll be all right. Oh, if that were only so. What are you holding on to, mama? My brother Jim was sitting with her 10 days before she died. She woke up, she looked at him. She said, they're asking me to cross over. Jim said, go. She didn't. Now that sounds like we're being real calm, but he was texting everybody going, they're asking her to cross over and we're going, should we come, should we come? There's a golden door, oh my gosh. Creepy things were going on. The hospice nurse asked, have y'all all released her to die? It's hard to say those words that you release your mother to die. That's hard to say. You break down with those kind of words. But we said, yes, we had, when we had. The hospice nurse said, 90% of their patients die in the early morning hours, so we should stay the night. My two sisters and I slept in our childhood bedrooms that night. Was that emotional? Wow. You're sleeping in the bed where you were secure and your parents took care of you. It was all different that night. In the early morning hours, the night sitter came running down the hall to get us up. Mama was dying. Don't cry, make me cry. We hurried to her bedside. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago when Jesus released his spirit. His body was 33. He was being executed by the men he came to save. But I was there at my mother's side on December 6th in the early morning hours, 337, when my mother finally opened that door in the middle of the golden windows. She released her spirit from her 97-year-old worn-out body. This is what I know for sure. You can take it to the bank. When my mother released her spirit, my teeny tiny world changed. But when Jesus released his spirit, the physical world changed. The sun stopped shining. The earth shook. Rocks split open. Tombs opened. Dead people were resurrected. The thick curtain in the temple tore completely apart, and it was inches thick. The spiritual realm was changed. The perfect sacrifice had been made. Satan was defeated. Death was defeated. Sins could now be permanently erased. Salvation was available for all mankind. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit was only 50 days away, Pentecost. In the moment that Jesus released his spirit, everything, everywhere, for everybody changed forever.
Heavy stone. 